appreciate the invitation, especially the time of year that we were invited, because we have never actually had the chance to be in Oxford or in England during the month of May. <laughs> and what better time could there possibly be to visit than in the month of May? It is absolutely gorgeous. So I hope, for some of you anyway, we'll be able to at some time return the favor and welcome you to Istanbul. So if you have plans, uh, be aware that Istanbul is actually very high on the list of uh, sought-after cities to visit. I think in 2014 it was the TripAdvisor uh, top of the list for cities that should be visited. So, Hoşgeldiniz, uh, come by all means. And if you come, then one of the things that uh, no doubt you'll want to do, in fact, I'll, I'll sort of make you do, I'll drag you along, is to come and sit by the Bosphorus. And, and for me, actually, any time sitting by the Bosphorus is wonderful, but especially on uh, warm evenings in the summer when the breeze comes off the water. And so we live in, in the city of Ushkudar on the Asian side. So you go down and sit by the Bosphorus, and of course you have a cup of tea in your hand because you can't sit by the Bosphorus without a cup of tea in your hand. Uh, and, and you look out, and it is just an absolutely magnificent spectacle as you look out. You, you look across and you see the, the lights of the European side of the city sparkling on the water and you'll be looking straight across at the Hagia Sophia. So imagine that I'm there and I'm sitting there uh, and, and perhaps I'm thinking about a sermon that I might prepare, who knows. You know? and, and as I look, my mind begins to wander and I look across and I see the Hagia Sophia and I think that has been there more or less in the same shape, take away the minarets, for 15 centuries, 15 centuries people have been able to look across at this same spectacle. And you start to get a sense of our smallness in scale when you realize that. And then you realize when that was built, the pyramids in Egypt were already 15 centuries old about, right? I mean, this is the scale of human history is amazing. And so this is a little bit mind-blowing. And so, you know, you look for something else. So you look up and you see these nice... Uh, lanterns that people buy and, and, and light and then throw up in the sky and you look up and, and they go up and then you, you catch sight behind them of a few stars. Now in Istanbul we don't see a lot of stars but I know enough to be able to imagine what's behind, right, the, the smog that obscures them sometimes. Uh, and so we catch sight of a few but I know that there are actually 30 billion trillion stars out there. That's, I think, I believe, if you do the math, it's 10 with 22 zeros, somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, give or take a few zeros, who knows, <laughs> right? Uh, 30 billion trillion stars, 350 billion galaxies in that sky out there, many of which, of course, we, we certainly can't see with the naked eye. I, I was looking at the news with some interest uh, a few weeks ago because, you know, they keep finding the next farthest galaxy. And I think this was, uh, the, the farthest visible galaxy at this point is 13.1 billion light years away? That's amazing. It's, it's, it's completely mind-numbing, the scale of the universe in which we live. So, you know, this is a little bit too much for me. So I look to my right, and this seems a little bit more within the range of, uh, you know, something I can comprehend. There are fishermen. And there are always fishermen along the Bosphorus. They never seem to sleep in Istanbul. The fishermen are always there. Uh, but, of course, my mind, wandering as it does, starts to think, well, how many fish are there in that sea? And, and one time I actually tried to Google this. And 
No one knows how many fish there are. Nobody even has a real estimate of how many fish in the sea. But in 2014, someone did a study that concluded there were 10 times more than we thought there were. <laughs> Go figure. You know. so, so there are 10 times more than we thought there were, and we had, we had no idea to begin with. And 90% of those fish are actually below the level where we'll ever have anything to do with them, that is, in terms of fishing or being likely to see them. 90% of the fish in the sea are way down, right? This is all a little bit too much, right? And it raises the question, a question nicely answered by the passage today, who made all this? Who made these galaxies and these stars and these fish and the amazing variety of life around us? Who made all of it? By whom? Through whom? For whom? Was it made? Who was it made for? And who holds it all together? Right? Who holds all of this amazing universe in which we live together, the, the weak forces and the strong forces, and who made the quarks and the Higgs bosons and all of the other particles that I have no idea what they are or what they do? Who made all of the things that are visible and invisible? Everything that we can possibly comprehend in this universe. And the amazing, the mind-numbing answer in this passage in Colossians is that it was Jesus. It was Christ who made it all. Christ who is responsible for, who holds together everything. We live in a spoken universe, and it is the Word of God, the Word of Christ, that holds it together. It is by His Word that all things continue. And if He was to remain silent, then it would cease to exist. We would cease to exist. Everything would cease to exist because we live in a universe that continues only by his word, that was created by him, that was created for him, that holds together because of him, because he wants it to hold together. This is the first and the most important message of this chapter, and it should, that alone should be enough to bring us to our knees, to think that this eternal Son of God revealed to us as a carpenter in Nazareth, hanging around with fishermen, a rabbi teaching fishermen that he is the one who created all things. He is the one for whom things, all things were created. He is the one who holds them all together, and without him nothing would be. This is in itself just an amazing thought that you know, we could dwell on, but that's, that's just verse 16. That's just verse 16. Let's back up a little bit. Verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God. Image, icon. He is the icon of God. Now, if you know anything about what an icon is supposed to do, an icon is something through which you see the reality of something else. In other words, it makes visible another reality, an invisible reality. Jesus is the icon of God, the true image of God. In other words, for God and his glory to be known to us, for us to be able to encounter it in any way, it has to be expressed, manifested in a way that can be approached, that can be touched, felt, heard. And Jesus is that image, the only true icon, the only true image of God. And he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, 
Here we have to be a little bit careful. How many firstborns are there in this uh, group right now? Could you raise your hands, please? You know, be proud of being firstborns, right? right? Now, why are you proud of being firstborns? It isn't just because you are the first among many, right? You're not just part of. You know that as a firstborn, you have priority, right? You have pri- you're firstborn because you, you know, firstborns know this deep in their hearts. Okay, so there's two ways of thinking about firstborn. First, there's the biological way. You're just the first to be born, right? No, but then there's the dominion way of thinking. You have dominion over the rest of the kids because right from when they were young, you knew you were in charge of them, right? So here we're not talking about the firstborn just first as part of. In fact, we're not talking about that at all. The Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to steal this verse from us. Do not let them, please, because this is firstborn as dominion. He is firstborn over all creation, right? He is the one who has dominion over all creation, and there is a reason why it's phrased in this way, and we find that out by looking back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, let me read a few verses of that. That will be familiar to you, but that we need to be reminded of in order to make sense of this passage. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. When Paul, in Colossians, in this poem, talks about Christ being the image of God and Christ having dominion over all creation, well, we're supposed to remember something. We're supposed to remember that actually in Genesis, it was mankind that God gave his image to and gave dominion, right? So it's taking us back to Genesis 1, and then we have this amazing picture that comes out, because we've already established that Jesus is the creator. He was the one who did it all. So we have the uncreated image of God, showing forth God's glory to the creation, and the uncreated one who has dominion over all of it, and the uncreated image passes on his image to a created image, man and woman and allows that image to be reflected further into the creation. And the uncreated one who has dominion passes on his firstborn status of dominion to a created one who has dominion, Adam and Eve, who are given dominion over creation. And so we have Christ, the one who is the true image of God, and mankind made in his image. And we have Christ, who is the one who has dominion. And we have mankind, who is given dominion like him in order to carry that out in the world. And what is the result of all of this put together? It is the world that we see depicted in Genesis 1, a world of enormous beauty and majesty, awesome in its scale and scope, just amazing to look at and beautiful in its order. Because what we see reflected in Genesis 1 is a world 
that reflects the peace of God, the shalom of God, in which all things work together in harmony created by God in order to glorify him, in order to, in some way, reflect back the image of God and of Christ to him. And that would be a wonderful, wonderful picture to linger on. But reality calls us. So we won't linger there because we need to ask a question. We need to ask the question, what now is the state of Christ's dominion? This amazing dominion that is his creation, this marvelous universe, what is its state? You know, each year the, the American president gives this State of the Union address that everybody pays so much attention to. So what would we, you know, how, what would we imagine would come up in a State of Creation address right now? Well, it wouldn't be so good, would it? If we look around the creation, let's go back to the Bosphorus and sit on the Bosphorus and, and look with different eyes. And look across first at the Hagia Sophia, this magnificent building, a wonderful monument to human ingenuity and engineering that has stood for so long. And let's imagine what it looks like after the next major earthquake, right? which will come and will come soon. Uh, don't make that a reason to be reluctant to come to Istanbul. I'm sure it won't happen while you're there. Right? Where will it be? It could very well. In fact, it's likely actually to collapse in the next earthquake. I think the bets are in that direction. And, and, and what about the fish? Well, they're on a somewhat smaller time scale even, right? I mean, how long do those little fish that we, we look at, how long do they live, right? Not very long. They have, they have a few days, maybe, before they're eaten before, by another fish. The big ones actually may, may live a few years. And, and then we look over to the fishermen, and we realize some of them are looking a little bit weathered as well, as are some of us, right? <laughs> so, you know, our time scale isn't that great either, right? We, we don't have all that much longer, and we think, well, let's look up in the sky. At least the time scale is greater there, you know, the, the galaxies and stars. And then we realize that the entire universe is in one way or another, running down. And this is the great reality of the universe in which we live, the great reality that we confront, right? So we, we see the magnificence and the beauty of it, and everywhere we look, we realize it will not last. It will not last because the entire universe is under the shadow of death. Our deaths, we, th we think about and we realize, are a shadow, and we try to deny them, perhaps, that shadow. But, but, but it's greater than that, because even if you could imagine, you know, as I think people do nowadays, well, could we extend our lives indefinitely? Are you going to be, be able to extend the life of this earth or the life of the stars indefinitely? No, you can't do that, right? It's a universe that is running down. And we get this actually so wonderfully and clearly depicted for us in passages of Scripture which should bring us back to reality. Psalm 90 is one of them. If you turn to Psalm 90, in which Moses must have been a little bit depressed, uh, Psalm 90, verse 3, You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death, and they're like new grass of the morning. Like new grass, like dust, were swept away. This is the reality of the universe in which we live. This is where things are going. And how do we cope with this reality? 
As we look around and we see the beauty of the universe and we recognize the shortness of the life that we have and the bleakness of the prospects before us, how do we cope? Well, Carol and I had uh, the, the fun of attending an event at the British Consulate in Istanbul not long ago. It was actually Bobby Burns night. Uh, so uh, so we, we were participating in the, in, the, in the dancing and, you know, hearing the wonderful poetry of Bobby Burns. And, of course, you always have to have some tribute to his life. And I had not realized, actually, until that, ni that night that, you know, he didn't actually have all that great a life. But, you know, it was interesting in any case. And we had a wonderful time meeting people that we had not met before. Uh, and, you know, there's some odd characters, so it's an always, always a kind of an interesting thing to, to see. And so, you know, we spent this evening together in this marvelous ballroom with these amazing chandeliers that were actually sent by Queen Victoria. They were meant to go to the Tsar in Russia, and they didn't make it all the way. They got stopped somehow in Istanbul. So, you know, we're there, and we come to the end of the evening, and at the end of the evening, what do you do? Well, you know, of course, you, you stand around and you hold hands and you sing Old Lang Syne. You know? it's, it was actually kind of a nice moment, right? You know? And it was completely an illusion, you know, because nobody there, most of the people there, would not see each other again and didn't care for each other at all, right? But for that moment, we imagined that somehow we had a connection. We imagined that, you know, somehow it made us feel better to think that maybe, you know, as we sing Auld Lang Syne and have these nice feelings that, that maybe the world isn't such a bad place after all. But it's an illusion. There's this uh, actually wonderful psychotherapist who writes books for popular audiences. His name is Irving Yalom. Uh, and Kitty will know all about him because she, he shows up in her courses that she takes. And Carol's been taking those courses, so I get to read him too. And Irving Yalom is, an, is a psychotherapist. Uh, one of the themes that he keeps on coming back to is that behind so much of our need for psychotherapy is death, fear of death, knowledge of death, right? That's what's behind it. And what is the best thing that he can offer in the face of that? The best thing that he can offer is try to have some sort of a meaningful human connection. You know? It won't take away the reality, but maybe it will sort of dull the pain a little bit if we can just connect with each other a little bit. This is the diagnosis that he has. And it is a pretty bleak picture when we put this all together and see this universe running down and all that we can do is maybe hold hands and sing Auld Lang Syne. It's a pretty bleak picture. And you know what? It needs to be bleak because we need to realize the darkness of that picture that we live in a universe in which the lights are going to be switched off. And our lives, most of them, will be switched off before the lights are switched off. And the people around us are in that same situation. We need to get that reality in our heads in order to feel the power of the next part of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to Colossians 1, verse 18. And, and what we need to do is actually look at the second half of that verse. The, the second half of that verse will begin... He is the beginning. He, now, our translations do not do justice to this passage. So, would, do I have your permission to be pedantic for a little bit? Okay, I'll be pedantic for a little bit because I have Pat's permission. But, you know, he's not representative, I know, but I take it, I'll take it as from all of you. Okay, so, uh, okay, this is a poem that we're reading here. 
Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And it is a beautifully structured poem. And it really has three parts. Two sides and a center, right? We'll get to the center at the last point. Okay, but the first side that we've already talked about is verses 15 and 16. And that is Christ as creator. And then the last part is going to be the second half of verse 18 onwards. Now, if we could balance this out in the Greek text, you would see, or even a a literal translation, you would see perfect parallelisms between the two, so that almost each phrase is matched by another phrase. And so we we had at the beginning, well, somebody read for me the the first verse, verse 15, since my Bible got to the wrong place. The Son is the image of the invisible God. This will actually be who is the image of the invisible God. In in other words, we know it's the Son, and so our translator puts that in, right? So who is the image of the invisible God? And if we go to the middle of verse 18, it will be who is the beginning, okay? And then the second part of verse 15 was the firstborn over all creation. And the next part of verse 18 will be the firstborn from among the dead. So you see these parallels in language are meant to draw our attention, and unfortunately translations fail in this. So it's meant to draw our attention. Here's a perfect parallel. Why is the parallel there? And why are we supposed to care that he is the beginning? Didn't we know that already? Didn't we already know that he was the beginning? Well, here's why it has to be said again. Go back to Genesis 1. And Genesis 1, in the beginning, what was the cosmos like? In the beginning, it was formless and void, right? Uh, so, so it's dark, it's formless, it's empty, the, the universe at the beginning. By the end of Genesis chapter 1, what is the cosmos like? It blazes with light. It's teeming with life. It's filled with order. Right? So in, in this chapter, in the first chapter of Genesis, you have this amazing transformation by the word of God from emptiness and darkness and formlessness to form and filling and, and blazing light. The beginning of the gospel, what is the world like? Well, it is dark, right? It is dark and our situation is hopeless and empty and and what happens in the gospel? Remember how the gospel of John begins, and actually each of the gospels has a clue in this direction, but John is the most obvious. It begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, wanting us to go back to Genesis. And then what is it going to do? It's going to say, and what happens then? The word enters creation, and blind eyes see light. Right? And, and, and limbs regrow, and, and dead people are raised to life. Right? Uh, and, and people are filled with something new. We have a new creation that has been inaugurated. And this second half of the poem is entirely about that new creation. So when it says, and he is the beginning, it's the beginning of this new creation that's being talked about. He is the arche, the beginning, and he is the firstborn from among the dead. I, I went skiing for the first time uh, in my adult life, oh, a little bit over a year ago, I guess it was. Uh, it was over, over Christmas. I, I, I succumbed to peer pressure. I, 
I have, we have these friends who like to go skiing, and you know, we thought it'd be nice to spend time with them, and so we went out to the ski report, resort, and I imagined that I would be able to sit and drink tea and watch them ski, you know, from inside in the warm, and of course have all of these nice Turkish pastries to feast on. But I, by peer pressure, I was dragged out to get a ski lesson, first of all, right? And, and that went fine, because you're on the bunny slope, right? You're on the, 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 the little kid's slope, and so mostly, you know, you fall down and you don't get hurt too badly. And it went well enough that first day, I was thinking, wow, you know, this is going okay, that they managed by peer pressure to drag me up to this really high place the next day. And once you get up to that high place, well, you have to get down, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, and what's the most important thing about to learn when you're learning to ski? Uh, stopping. You know, learning how to stop is really important. So here's an image I want to put in your minds. You're on a ski slope, and you and all of humanity and all the universe, and you're going down, right? And you have no idea. In fact, you cannot stop. And this is the ski slope of death, the winding down of the universe. And there's a cliff you're going towards, and you can't stop yourself. And some of you are ahead of others on this ski slope down, but all of us are going down. And some of us are trying desperately to slow that you know, process. You know, we, we do all sorts of things to slow the process, but we can't slow it. And not only we, but you know, the whole universe with us, in a sense, is heading down that ski slope towards death. This is the picture at the beginning of the gospel. And then... What's the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is he is the firstborn from among the dead. Who, who's the dead? It's we are. We're going down that ski slope. He's, the, he's done it before us. He goes over the cliff, and the next thing we know, he's skiing uphill. There's, there's this amazing, amazing uh, painting, fresco, in a church in Istanbul, and it's a church that I hope that you might have a chance to visit someday, perhaps. It's the church at Kora, and it's an, an, one of the famous icons, actually, of the harrowing of hell. And this one is particularly moving. Jesus, the risen Jesus, is depicted reaching down and grabbing Adam and grabbing Eve, one with each arm, and pulling them, wrenching them out of the grave. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Adam and Eve and everybody after them, he is dragging us out of the grave, pulling us back up that ski slope. And by reason of this, he has greater dominion than even at the beginning. Because he has extended his dominion over sin and over death. There is nothing that is outside of his power. This is good news. This is good news indeed. This is good news enough to draw us to our knees and to worship. Because God is not just, didn't just start a universe off to allow it to wind down in rebellion against him. He entered into that universe in order to restore it again to something completely new. He is inaugurating a new creation through Jesus, through his death on the cross, reconciling all things to himself. And where do we see that new creation? This is amazing in itself. We see that new creation right at the middle of this poem. Remember, there are two parts. There was the first part, 
Christ is author of creation. There's the last part. He is the author of a new creation, reconciling this old creation to himself by his blood. And right in the middle, we have the first part of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. There's a reason that's in the middle, because this is a poem where the structure matters. So imagine that it's a, a giant X here, a cross. Right? You have one part, you have two parts. What's in the middle is the most important. That's what is to draw our eyes, draw our attention. It is through the church that Jesus wants to work his new creation in the world. It's in small communities like Colossae that he is inaugurating this new creation where he is transforming people, drawing them from death to life and making them into new beings. And this is the first fruits of his restoration of all things. It's in places like Colossae, and in Laodicea, not very far away, and in Hierapolis, and in Smyrna, all of them in Turkey, of course, that God did this at that time. And you know what? He's doing it again. He's doing it again. He has established his small communities of people, little seeds of the new creation all over the place. He's in Diyarbakir, in Gaziantep, in multiple places in Istanbul and Ankara. Right? They're all over the place, these little seeds of God's creation, God's new creation. And they're places where someone like Aisha, the woman that Carol was talking about, that God is calling can come and someone will walk out of church and see her and say, is something wrong? And God's Spirit has led them together. It's just amazing. It's amazing what God is doing, what God wants to do in our world. And by this time, the poor Pat and Catherine are thinking, you know, we've gone through this whole passage and he hasn't even mentioned World Church Sunday or missions or any of that, right? So, so here it is, finally, right? Uh, to try to, try to make it worthwhile to have brought me here. <laughs> we, we marginalize. We marginalize God's work in the world, what we often call missions, in our churches often, right? We assign a small group of people and say, it's your business to supervise this part. You know, the, the rest of the church will do the, the other things, you know, and, and, and you do, do, do this part, uh, you know, and it's important. We say it's important. We want to support it, and we'll give you two Sundays a year, you know, uh, and, and that's great. And, of course, they feel good about that. And, and, but that is completely at odds with the the amazing vision that we have here that God is not just wanting us to send a few people here and there in, in order to, you know, sort of spread uh, some sort of a human community, some sort of a human idea. No, God's project is much bigger. God wants to recreate the entire cosmos. That's what he's doing. He is recreating the entire cosmos, and he said, you, Modlin Road Church, I'll give you a part in that. And you think, but we're so small. You know, what can we do? Well, what were the Colossians? They were smaller than you, right? They had less resources than you. They had no cell phones. They had no internet. They didn't have all of this stuff, but he expected them to do it, right? He expected the church in Jerusalem, even before them, to change the world. He can do it through you. And he wants to do it through you. And it's a far bigger thing than you can possibly imagine that he wants you to do. It is a far bigger thing, a far more exciting thing. And where will it all end? Where is it all going to? Revelation 21 gives us a picture of where it's all going to. 
Revelation 21, where Jesus himself says, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And earlier he had said that God, God's dwelling itself would be among his people in, in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And this is what you're involved in. This is what the world church is. It is the seeds of the new creation that will give birth to this amazing plant of God's new creation when he finally brings it to full fruition. And what are the signs of that new creation that you should be looking for in this church or in Istanbul or in Diyarbakur or in Gaziantep? Well, they're scattered all the way through the book of Colossians. It's amazing. You read the first chapter of Colossians and what is it going to be about? It's going to be saying things like the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. Why does he say that? Because what, what was it that Adam and Eve were supposed to do? They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Right? The, the old creation. But now it's the new creation and you're still supposed to be, 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 supposed to be fruitful and multipl multiply, but in a different way, in a spiritual way. Making new children for God and bringing them in. Right? And, and it will say that they were brought from darkness into light. Just as in Genesis, the world was dark and it was made light. The, the, the Colossians were brought from darkness into light. And then the rest of the book will play out what does it look like actually to be reconciled to God in community and reconciled to each other. And we see a picture of the shalom of God being restored within the church. And so you as a church, we as churches scattered throughout the world have the opportunity to live out now what God will completely bring to fruition in the future. That is, a full restoration of all things to himself, a full reconciliation of all things to himself. What an amazing picture. So, what, how should we respond? Well, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, uh, for your word that uh, is just so marvelously uh, perfect for what we need and that gives us uh, such a vision of what your purposes are in the world. And we ask you, Lord, to fill our hearts by your Holy Spirit with an increased vision, an enlarged vision of your purposes in this world. Uh, to help us to see what you want to do, Lord. Uh, just speak to us. Uh, and as we go away from this place later, help us to go away as those who are spreading the news of your new creation. Lord, you are making all things new. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.